Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Entrepreneur Architect Podcast, Episode 28. Welcome to this episode of the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. One of the most important tasks architects should be doing to improve the success of their firms is to develop strong business systems that will allow them to quickly perform the routine everyday tasks of running a busy architecture firm. The quickest and maybe the most effective way to do this is to leverage the power of software developed to perform these tasks with ease and efficiency. Stephen Burns is an architect who saw a need for such an application and set out to create a software package that managed most every aspect of running his own small firm. Several years later, his software became his business, and that business was eventually acquired by BQE Software, where today, Stephen is the Chief Creative Officer. I've wanted to speak with Stephen for a while now about ArchiOffice, the software he developed, to learn more about how it works and how it may help us small firm entrepreneur architects build better businesses. So let's get right into it. Here's my interview with Stephen Burns, FAIA of BQE Software. Stephen Burns, welcome to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, for being here with me. Um, we uh, We met a while back 
you had um, uh, you were the guest blogger on Entrepreneur Architect back when I was writing the uh, the Entrepreneur Architect Academy blog post series, and you were kind enough to write uh, a three part uh, post on financial management for small firms, which has been uh, wonderfully received at the time and all the way through to today. I still get people going back to that. I think it's a, a very valuable resource that you did for us. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'd like to get into your story, you know, before we get too much into uh, what you do and, and, and why you do it. But I'd like to kind of get into uh, your story of becoming an architect and talk a little bit about your journey to where you are today. Oh, sure. Uh, so it's uh, not the uh, enough about me. Let's do more about me. Um, okay, we'll focus on me for a moment here. Um, I, I didn't discover architecture actually until I was uh, a little um, uh, older, a little later in life. I was nearly finished with my undergraduate studies as a uh, fine arts major. I was a sculpture uh, candidate. So um, I uh, got my undergraduate degree in, in fine art and sculpture. And it wasn't until I was a senior that I really realized um, I got to make a living. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I decided since my sculpture was actually quite large, they were essentially rooms you walked into, that I could prolong uh, the education experience and delay going out into the workforce by studying architecture. So I went on to... Um, go to grad school. Uh, I, I did my first year of master's program in architecture at MIT and um, didn't quite fit me. And so I transferred over to Harvard to the Graduate School of Design and um, finished up the three and a half year program there, graduating way back in 1986. Uh, and so at that point, um, I decided to start off my career in Chicago and I, I, I left Boston uh, you know, took the U-Haul with all my belongings and moved to Chicago. And I, I started at uh, Skidmore, Owings & Merrill, SOM. And had seven years there, had some of the greatest experiences any young architect could hope to have. Got an opportunity to live in London for a year and Berlin for a year and a half. And, and then I decided I was time to open my own office. And my wife and I were about to have our first child. And I thought this would be a good a time as any to go off and try something before, you know, the responsibilities became too great at home. So I opened up uh, my firm in 1993 and uh, took a partner. After about a month of working alone, I realized I wasn't well suited to be a sort of a, a lone architect. I really liked working with people and in teams. And uh, I sought out a, another architect who I had um, known through his wife worked at SOM with me. And so we'd gotten to know each other socially. And I knew he had been at his firm for nine years at that point and uh, suggested that maybe now would be a good time for him to go out you know, with me and we can create a firm together. So uh, that was um, the start of Burns and Beryl Architects. So my, my good friend Gary Beryl and I opened our office about a month later after I went out on my own and uh, that's how we started. So we we um, just started the two of us. We got a little tiny office space in uh, in Chicago and slowly grew. Um, about two years later we kind of outgrew our space. There were five of us crammed in 700 square feet and and we decided to step up a little bit. We 
rented large office space in a loft building and at that point grew to about 14 people and were subject to the problems of landlords and their changing rent. And so we decided to finally buy a, a space of our own. And so we bought our own building and moved our office there. But at the same time as we were practicing and, and the firm was growing, we were doing predominantly high-end single-family residential work, small commercial projects, some restaurants, some boutique hotel work. Uh, but for the most part, it was really geared towards that high-end residential market, which is, by the way, one of the great markets to always be to be in because it's really always doing well. There's always somebody making money, regardless of how the general economy is going, and they spend it on themselves. That's another story. But anyway, um, at the same time, I, I had started to find out that I wasn't loving the fact that I had to run a firm. I really thought of myself as a design architect and loved the process of design and sketching and drawing and and that normal um, routine that we all imagine is what, you know, the quintessential architect does. But since I was the firm founder and kind of was on my shoulders to make sure the firm was running, and I found that it was distracting to getting in the way of me getting to spend the time doing what I really love to do. And as an architect, we all know that, you know, design is oftentimes the solution to our problems. So I thought that uh, software, uh, getting the right software for my firm to manage the business would free me up. And as I went through this process of trying to research, and of course we were small, and, and this was actually in 1997, so we had had the firm for four years at that point, and uh, didn't really have the kind of money to spend on expensive technology. So I, I decided, well, I, I, I'll design my own software. It started as naively as that. I, I didn't realize what was going to be involved in doing that, but uh, that turned into a three-year uh, journey of learning and, and, and getting other people's solutions for other purposes and deconstructing them and trying to figure out how to write code. And uh, it was sort of an, an obsession, you know, from uh, 8 p.m. at night, you know, sort of after dinner and the family going to, you know, putting the kids down to three or four every single morning. I was obsessed with building this code for a program to run my firm, to do all the management things, to handle all of our client issues, to run our projects, to deal with our billing, to, you know, for our staff to do their time card, and to handle a lot of other things. And uh, so after about three years and every night, you know, the guys at the office would say, hey, that looks great. Can you make it do this? And I go home and, and make it do that and bring that into the office the next day. But we had hired, I think at that point, we had hired a fellow who was maybe employee number 11, if I recall correctly. It was about two, the year 2000 and, or 1999. Anyway, he, he used to work for another architect. And so he called up his old boss and he said, hey, these guys at Burns and Barrel are using this software that you always said you, you wished you had something that would do this. And what ended up from that discussion is he introduced himself to me and asked to come see it. And after seeing what it had done for my firm, he asked if he could buy it. And it, interestingly enough, he was also a competitor of ours. And but I'm friendly in that in that regard. And I said, look, it's not really not a commercial grade software product, but let me just clean it up and give me three months and let me get let you put it in your office and see how uh, how it works out for you. So after a year of his firm using our software, he he said, hey, this this really has made a difference in my life. Can 
I invest in this? Can we make it a commercial product? Which changed everything in my life. At that moment, what happened was is I got my normal life back because no longer was I going to be the developer, the programmer. We put our money together. We hired real programmers, which actually was kind of interesting because you know, if, if you're an architect, you probably had clients come in and they've got their own sketches and they've done their own drawings or whatever, and they're very fond of them. And, and you look at them and roll your eyes or try not to let them see you roll your eyes. But I realized after hiring real development people, what a terrible programmer I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So it was, you know, how a, a beautiful set of working drawings really has no redundancies. You know, there's always one reference and you edit it once and it's always, you know, propagates out throughout the, the set of drawings. But for me, going on a three-year journey of writing software, I kind of didn't know where I, where I was going with the, the software. And so I would every time I would have a need, I would rewrite the same code over and over and over again to do things without referencing back. But that was funny to, to, to see the developers roll their eyes at me <laughs> like I used to roll them at my, my clients. But they spent about two years, maybe almost almost three years, taking my prototype and turning it into a commercial software product. We we call the product ArchiOffice and we got it finally out into the market in April of 2003, which coincided with the uh, AIA convention in, in Chicago that year. And no, I think it's 2004. Maybe it was, it was uh, April 2004. So uh, we got a booth and we just started selling our software and it went like hotcakes and it was kind of took off on its own. But what happened was is in 2006, I had hired a management consultancy to look at our software business and help advise me as to what to do with it. My, my hope was is that they would come in and manage it and find a, a CEO and you know allow me to really go back and continue to just being an architect. But at the end of their research, they recommended that I move into the business full time. So this was... May of 2007 and I thought I was you know turning 50 and I thought this would be a great next chapter in my life I had 14 years I'd been running the architectural firm I had the seven years at SOM before that and I thought you know this might be kind of an interesting thing to try I am sort of an adventurous person so uh, decided to sell my shares in in my architecture firm to two of our junior partners and go full-time into software so I did that come uh, I think it was June at that point of 2007, which started me in a, a new career. And then I had to figure out what I, how I identify myself because, you know, I started to fly around and visit a lot of our customers and understand what they were doing with our software. And people on the plane would say, so what do you do? <laughs> and then I'd have to say, uh, you know, um, uh, well, I, I guess I'm an architect, but I, I'm a software developer. And it was a real identity problem for me because as architects, we really identify with what we are, what we do. It's, it's a part of our id, our being. And, uh, and now I discovered I'm, I'm actually what I call a recovering architect, which is I still have the passion and the desire to surround myself and, and, and with, with architecture, but uh, don't really indulge in it on a day-to-day -day basis. So uh, that led me to... Um, having the software company to meeting up with uh, the CEO of a company, a much larger competitor of ours, a BQE software, another privately held software company uh, out in California. And so we uh, 
got together uh, following the AIA convention in 2009 in San Francisco. That was the year I became a fellow in the AIA, and I had a lot of responsibilities. I wasn't in my booth as much as I normally intend to be. And so we didn't have as much uh, time to get together and talk. But after the AIA convention, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about our companies and our history. And the CEO of BQE Software was a structural engineer, kind of went down the similar path where he developed software really to run his business and turned that into, uh, you know, and and basically morphed his life. The long story short is, uh, we decided to uh, be uh, acquired by BQE Software. So Archie Office and uh, we have another product called Engineer Office then became part of the brands uh, at BQE Software. My, my team, uh, for the most part, remained in Chicago. I moved out here to Los Angeles to join BQE Software where I'm today. So that is the long, <laughs> sorry if it was too long for you, but the, the long history to get you up to date from where I started to where, where I am today at BQE. Definitely not too long. A very, very interesting story. It sounds like a story of connections. Like uh, many of your advancements were the result of reaching out to other people. Oh, sure. Uh, what else is there, <laughs> you know, um, other than, I mean, if we knew where we were going to be, you know, today, if I knew where I was going to be in five years from now, that wouldn't be much of an adventure. So great pleasure in our lives are meeting, you know, our clients and doing our projects and meeting all the people we do business with and something happens and, and you go down a different branch and that makes life so much more exciting. So uh, I have, I have zero regrets at all, but uh, grateful for, you know, the kind of interesting path I've, I've followed and I continue to uh, look forward to the future. Yeah, I, I agree that that um, that reaching out and connecting with other people are the things that uh, help help people and businesses advance. But I'm not sure every architect does that. I think many architects kind of have their blinders on and they do their architecture and they just sort of get into a routine and that's pretty much all they do. And they don't really look beyond what they do every day to see the possibilities of what could be beyond that. Well, perhaps, but that's that's sort of strange, you know, in that I would think so much about architecture is looking and seeing and, you know, appropriating and reinventing and building on things. And, you know, you need things to build build on. And the people we meet and the and people we do business with, those are things that we build on. So I would think it would be a natural uh, part of one's uh, way of doing things, whether it's as an architect and putting together buildings out of lots of little pieces or dealing with your your business and your life by putting together lots of people to help make make the creation that will end up being, you know, your career and your life. Yeah. Was, was it difficult in 2007 to make the decision to leave architecture to go full time into software? Strangely enough, no. Uh, you would think it would be. Um, a lot of people kept saying to me, man, aren't you going to miss design? But I always looked at software as design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, where, as depending on the scale of architecture that you work on, uh, your, your projects that you design can impact dozens to tens of thousands or to millions of people. Uh, in doing, you know, the this, this sort of residential work that we were doing, my work did have an impact on lives, but it was a very small group of people. As a software designer, which is 
kind of what I do, uh, I impact the lives of actually tens of thousands of people every single day. So for me, I, I still look at software as, uh, you know, there is this experience. You are not moving through space, but you are in, involved with interacting uh, with something. And that's a, those are design decisions that you have to make every step of the way. So I never saw it uh, as, as uh, uh, an issue. Frankly, I kind of liked leaving architecture because I was never great with clients. A lot of high net worth individuals whose homes we would do are very difficult people to work for. And uh, probably a lot of people are smiling if they're st still listening to this. But uh, it, it's, it's, you know, oftentimes a clash of, uh, I wasn't the best. I should have taken psychology when I was in college. I, I never did. So I, I was never really great with reading the signals of, of, our, of my clients. So having to no longer work specifically with those kinds of people was not something I I, it didn't bother me leaving that uh, per se, but yeah, I still feel like I design every single day. Yeah, that's very interesting. The um, the software that you developed, could you talk a little bit more about the specifics of what it does and how it works? Well, what I what I looked at it as is, I said, well, I'm a right brain kind of guy. I really love seeing things from that side of the world, but there's a lot of things that one is responsible to take care of in their business and to neglect it or neglected entirely means you probably don't have a very sustainable business and you're just lucky. So people who are successful in business when the economy is great are probably not necessarily can attribute their success to the fact that they're good business people. It's just they happen to be in the right place at the right time and things are, they're moving with the current. But when business goes bad or times go bad and the economy is tough uh, and your business doesn't really run it doesn't have the sort of the, let's say the back office isn't really set up as well uh, as it should, then you learn the hard way that you are actually just maybe a great architect, a great designer, a great people person, uh, but running the business was maybe not your forte. And that's where your Achilles heel is in your business. So as we all probably saw in 2008 and nine, uh, a lot of firms learned that lesson the hard way. And so, so the software was intended for me to take away those pain points that I was having. You know, I was spending every, every single month I had to get the billings out. And yes, while we had a small handful of projects early on, you know, maybe five or six or seven projects that we were working at one time, you know, when we grew to 14, 15, 17 people, we were really running, you know, 20 projects, 25 to 30 projects in a month and getting those billings out. Uh, it was as mundane as getting invoicing out that really probably started this process for me. It was such a burden to me. And looking at what was done that month, you know, what kind of a contract did I have? Was it an hourly contract or did we have a fixed fee or a percentage of cost of construction or whatever these things were? And do we have some additional services and how would I bill those? It took me away from the fun stuff of being an architect to the drudge work. So the software was intended to help me make that really easy and fast. And I, I, I love one of the quotes I got from one of our early customers who was one of those early adopters and, and uh, bought a, the first version of ArcheOffice. He said, oh, wow, it took me, it used to take me three days to do all my invoicing and now I do it in three minutes. And that's the kind of thing I had wanted to hear back then. But it did, it, it did, um, 
Well, you know, on one hand you say, well, it, it, it got me back my, my life to be an architect, but then maybe it backfired because I'm no, no longer <laughs> practicing as an architect. So, uh, but for the, for the time being, it did, it, it, it did provide the ability for me to track all of my, um, well, actually I shouldn't say anymore. Let's just talk about ArchiOffice today. ArchiOffice is really allows you to track all of your contacts, everyone you do business with, whether they're a client or a vendor, a product rep, you know, a, a consultant of yours, everything to do with them, all their documentation, any notes you have about them, if they're clients, you know, being able to easily get to every single invoice and the status of that and their payments and not have to deal with accounting software, uh, but to see it in a environment that is say architect friendly. Um, I call it front office software as opposed to that accounting software, which is back office. I really wanted everybody in my office to be responsible. You know, no one needed to wait for a week to get a report from a management person to say, hey, your project is, you know, it's, you know, at this particular status. They should always know instantly where things are. So contact management, document management was a very large component to this because as architects, we do we are responsible for not only creating a lot of documents, but for managing lots of other people's documents, you know, including our consultants and our our clients, and keeping order with those and finding them and and creating new documents was a process I wanted to simplify. Obviously, the time tracking and the project um, billing and budgeting and Another important component was quality control. So we have a, a checklist system that allows every project to follow a, a, a process of what things, what deliverables, what reports, or anything that you really need to do within a phase of a project to do your jobs responsibly as an architect would be would be managed for you. So you don't get into the design development phase and 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 realize, oh, I forgot to do that zoning and code analysis and now I violated my setbacks or my height limitations and I got to redesign stuff. So quality control was a, another key aspect to it. And you know, a little bit to do with scheduling and those kinds of things uh, were really the things that we built into, into ArchiOffice. So it really is a business system software for small firm architects. It basically covers everything that you need uh, from a business point of view to run a small firm is what it sounds like. Yeah, just about, but also with the uh, kind of skew it so that it's really designed around the, the, the needs and the, and the mentality of an architect. So uh, you know, it's, it's a uh, very aesthetic environment as well because, you know, I think architects are pretty sensitive to the look, you know, not just the functionality, but, you know, if I'm going to spend a lot of time using a particular software or put myself inside of a building, I'm going to make the darn best looking place I can put myself in. So uh, it, it's it's designed not just to do the functions that, you know, people with maybe an MBA might be looking for, but with that particular little twist that makes it um, uh, appealing to an architect because they don't normally get attracted to data. They are not really interested that much in you know, understanding the numbers so much. But if you can present it to them in a way that it actually has maybe it is a little bit sexy, uh, then they would be more inclined to use the software and hopefully benefit from you know, what, it, what value it would bring to your, to your business. Yeah, I would think that the, the design of it for your architects and designers is, is critical. Um, is it, is it, and I, I don't intend this whole episode to be a, a commercial for 
the software, but I, I'm very interested in what it is and, and, um, and how it works. So we're going to keep talking about it. Um, <laughs> the, the transition from, uh, the lack of systems or the sort of, uh, created systems along the way, the hand manual systems that many architects use the transition from that to the new software. Is that how, how difficult is it to kind of get ramped up into it? Well, that's a really actually, that's a really great question. I'm glad you asked that because oftentimes what we look at in our own company, if we are working with um, a, an architectural firm and they're evaluating our software uh, and they decide, you know what, we're not going to, you know, implement your software. And we'll talk about, you know, what, what happened? What, what's the competition? What are they doing? They don't often leave for the competition. What happens is it, it's, it's I, I refer to it as the status quo. They basically, the, 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 the process of changing is often very, very difficult for people. Yeah. It's a cultural change sometimes. The business may have been around for many years, uh, or there are a few people in the company who won't embrace change. So it is important that that the firm is welcoming change and not feeling like it's being imposed on them. For us, it's always important when we are working with a, a prospect, a, a firm that's considering our software, to make sure that the folks at the, the top uh, of the firm are going to endorse this and actually help make this migration possible for their firm. So. Uh, that's the only way it's going to be successful. So the top has to embrace it, and then everybody in the firm has to then understand implementing the software in our firm. What value will it bring to me in my day? You know, everybody's about themselves. Like, what am I going to get out of it? And maybe another an, an analogy to help understand this is: is any, if any firm has ever gone through the process of changing their CAD software, you know how difficult this is. For years and years, your your staff may have been working in. A particular CAD software. I won't mention any names, but then you realize, oh, there's another product out there that really will help us do do it better, or does it better. So we're going to change. And everybody knows they've got deadlines that they're working on. You know, they got their own deliverables, and they can do it a whole lot faster in that old software. And as long as you leave that software for them, they'll open up their old CAD software. They'll get those drawings done, and then they'll very difficult transition. It'll take a very very long time. And so. As long as everybody understands that what the big picture, what the long-term prospect is, then getting them over that short-term pain of changing systems is understood by them. And they realize, oh, so I'm going to have this short period where my favorite tools are taken away from me. But as soon as I learn those, you know, how to do these drawings with this new CAD software, it's going to be so much faster. So that's what we, that's one of the things we do is, is have to deal with their change in their culture from, you know, from the very top of the firm to maybe even a young intern understanding and appreciating why they should be doing and using uh, the software and what benefit they will get and what benefit the firm in general will get. And as long as the firm is stronger and healthier, everybody should get on board that particular train. Yeah, I think it took architects a long time to go from hand drafting to CAD drafting. I think that um, as architects become more and more aware of the importance of building strong businesses, that business software is going to be one of those things that is eventually will become a norm for, for small firms. But will take a long time to get past the fear of of diving into it, uh, unless you start with it. Um, 
is is there a cloud version of it? Yeah, well, well, um, BQE software has a number of products. Uh, ArchiOffice is just one of those products. It's my, my particular baby, and I, I like to focus in on it, and I think it would resonate very well with your, your listeners. Uh, it is a, it's called a web application. So it really needs no software. None of, none of the uh, employees, none of the, what you would call a client, the person who accesses the software needs anything. All they really need is a browser. So it's, uh, it runs in a browser, um, which is basically referred to as a web application. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that it is cloud-based is really up to the particular firm and how they want to deploy it. Most firms uh, are, you know, our typical firm is, you know, five to eight employees. You know, we'll have firms with well over 100 seats, but the average, when you think about the average firm in this country is also quite small, is very small. And so they're really, um, you know, their needs might be very simple and their their budgets might be very low. And so for them to deploy the web app locally and not up in the cloud might suit them. And so they'll just take a computer in their firm and, you know, turn it into a, an Archie office server and then, it basically is hosting the web app and all of their staff would be able to access it, whether they're locally or remote. remote. It doesn't really matter. These things can be managed depending on their, uh, how their internet service works for their, you know, in their locale, but they would have a switch that would know, oh, this guy's outside the office and this is where uh, he can find uh, our firm's Archie office uh, database. Uh, other firms, and generally speaking, these are the larger firms, firms that might have offices in multiple cities or continents and they they don't think it makes any sense for them to host it in their new york office so they will put it up in what's called managed hosting services up uh, in the cloud so that's nice they don't have any hardware to, to be responsible for they don't have to run any of their own updates and backups so they they leave that to a company you know like rackspace there's a lot of other companies out there that will host your cloud for you uh amazon uh and so forth so they'll put it up in the cloud if, if they want to, but uh, it's really up to the, the firm and their needs. And, and a lot of people think with uh, cloud computing today, it's sort of a subscription-based thing that, you know, we'll just do it, you know, monthly and, and so forth. And so we've actually changed our own um, uh, sales model to allow our customers to basically subscribe to the software, even though they will deploy it themselves, either locally or in the cloud. They don't have to make this large investment in purchasing, you know, this big capital purchase of some sort of software. They can simply uh, run it as a subscription uh, like you would with, you know, a lot of the, you're probably all very familiar with other subscription services out there for software. Right, AutoCAD runs runs a subscription yeah, service. Yeah, sure. And, and I think everybody's kind of moving to that model. Everybody's becoming accustomed that they don't have to make this major, major investment, but maybe, uh, you know, they, they, and they could see it easily that, oh, gee, you know, each one of my staff is, you know, it's going to cost X dollars a month to keep him using my software. And it's also nice because a lot of architects in the summer might bring on some interns and they don't want to have to buy seats of software anymore for these guys because they may not be around in two or three months. So they can just add seats and drop the seats if they need to. So my firm, I, I moved from a 2,000 square foot office with a bunch of staff in a big room to a, a virtual model where we moved uh, to a small studio where I'm in, in separately in my own studio and my staff is now remote in their own studios. And I'm doing most of my work through Dropbox and Evernote and through email and Skype. And I think that's 
going to be much more common and much more popular for small firms as we grow in order to reduce overhead because the tools are becoming more mature and and uh, it, it just makes sense from a business point of view. Sure. Is, is this type of software, uh, without sort of having it on a hosted server somewhere, um, can it be installed in a Dropbox or, or uh, accessed? Like you said, it's a web app, so... Like well, it, it, it wouldn't be, the software wouldn't run in a, in, in a Dropbox, but uh, I, I think we, we do have customers who actually use Dropbox for their document management system. Uh, it's tricky, but uh, it, it allows them to not only have nice backups of it, but everybody can have access to, to it where it's up in the cloud, that all their files are up in the cloud as opposed to being behind a firewall in their own office and, right. you know, difficult to manage. Um, but with the, I mean, the, the way you are describing it, and by the way, I, I love Evernote, it's a huge fan of Evernote, uh, is, is I think the, the way people are moving today, they finally have become accustomed to living in the internet. I do remember when we started and you know, we, we made the decision not to be uh, reliant on the internet because people still had, right. some people even still had dial-up uh, modems back then and in the, in the, in the late 90s and so and nobody had reliable internet service back then and we had some customers who complained that you know their internet was not always working well in their building and it got throttled back but i think everybody today is finally on board with this and the technology's gotten to the point where we can move large data files really quite quickly over the internet but uh you, you using archeoffice to run your your firm it doesn't mean you can't continue to use Dropbox and Evernote and those sorts of things, but not everything is going to be integrated with ArchiOffice either. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to delude myself to thinking that there's a, one solution to take care of everything. I, I've, had, I've actually had firms say, you know what, we're not going to actually implement the software until it can do everything. We want it to control all of our BIM ish, you know, stuff and our, right. our CAD drawings and our, and basically I don't want anybody to be in any application but in ArchiOffice and it should be able to control everything, which is a, unrealistic and uh, a place where no one is ever going to go. But that, that's, I think people need to appreciate that not everything is a, a Swiss Army knife can't do everything for you. And you're going to sometimes have to put that tool down and pick up something else to get the job done. So would it, would it work well with a firm like mine that's that's spread out across you know actually the oh, whole country? Absolutely, it, it it's perfect for. I feel like I'm, I please Mark. Mark, I'm not doing a, a sales pitch for you no, at all. And, and, but maybe I, later we should we should do a demo together and 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 demonstrate it for you. But uh, absolutely, that, yeah. it, 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 we expect teams to be remote. I mean, our since it runs on a browser, in fact, uh, we expect people to be on their iPad on a job right. site and need to access last week's uh, field report or something. Yeah, that's like that. exactly what I'm thinking. Yeah. Right. So okay. So. Uh, Yes, it, having to be sitting at a desk, you know, 25 feet away from somebody else isn't way we're, the way we're moving. And it, it doesn't, I mean, even if you do have a firm like that, that's great. If you don't, that's fine too. Right, right, okay. Um, are there other softwares, you know, from a small firm point of view, how important is software to, to the success of a small firm from your, your point of view? Uh, you, what kind of software do you mean? Do you mean the kind that I'm talking about or well, any, any, or any kind of software? I mean, I think a lot of small firms, they, they're running AutoCAD or they're running a, you know, some sort of BIM program. Um, and they may be running QuickBooks. Some of them may be running QuickBooks. And I, I think everything else is manual. 
And I think that uh, one of the things that I try to encourage architects, small, small firm architects and sole proprietors to do is to really focus on business systems. And that's really what your, your software is doing, but there's other software, you know, um, you know, like an Evernote that, that can be integrated into the systems of a business. Um, are there other softwares that you would know about um, that that might be useful for small firm architects that they may need to know about? Oh, yeah. I, well, I mean, if you're looking for a, a list of like my favorite yeah. <laughs> software things, uh, I'm always trying new things. And um, one of the interesting things is a lot of, t you know, maybe if you've all experienced this with your smartphones, I, I, I happen to use a, an iPhone, but that doesn't really much matter what you use. I, I think I, I have downloaded more apps on my mobile devices and deleted them than I have still sitting on my device. So the fact is, is that there's a lot of really great stuff out there, but will you use it for the long term is really cri a critical question. Now, certainly for me, Evernote is one of those things. It was, it came on early and it, it, it is brilliant and it can, they continue to build on what you can do with it. So that still sits on my, my, my iPad and my iPhone and on my computer. And I, I use it not every day, but I, I do use it and rely on it quite frequently. So there's a lot more that I have tried that I thought had, I had great hope for that I have since discontinued. Uh, I'm a big fan of really, um, Actually, the opposite of what I, was talk what I was talking about earlier, you know, rather than just one program that does everything, I actually think like things like Wonderlist is one of my favorite little, you know, applications. It's a web app and it's a mobile app as well that I use uh, every single day, all day long. I'm using Wonderlist now. And I've been using it for maybe a year, which is pretty long time to, you know, for adopting a, 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 an app and continuing to use it. Um, well, obviously, what Dropbox. Is, what does Wonderlist do? Oh, it's 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 you know, there's so many companies out there that have built ways to manage your lists, mm -hmm. but uh, Wonderlist uh, is a wonderful way to manage lists and categorize them and share them with people and be reminded by them. But it's so fast and easy to use; it's not overly, you know, over the top where they put too many bells and whistles on it, so they get to the point where I, you know, like 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 any software, it's like. How many of us use publish and subscribe in Microsoft Word or something like that? There's like so many things that you can do with a lot of software, but our general needs are pretty simple. So, uh, yeah, check out Wonderlist, W-U-N-D-E-R list. Um, that's kind of uh, top of mind right now. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm hoping one day that we all get rid of email. Uh, email is like the bane of my existence and maybe for a lot of people as well. It, it occupies so much time. And I remember listening to, um, not listening to, I was reading a book by Nicholas Negroponte who, made, who wrote a book called Being Digital and he wrote it, I don't know, almost 30 years ago. He's the, the fellow who created the, um, uh, the Media Lab at MIT. And um, he had um, talked about fax machines, I think is what it was, about how fax machines have really hurt technology and progress. And you think about it, people would write up, or, or maybe those days they either wrote it on a computer and they printed it out and then they put it in a fax machine and it got to the other end and then somebody had to type it back up and, or do something with it. And they were going back and forth through faxes. And email at the time he wrote this book was, you know, 
hot new thing coming up and it made so much more sense, right? Everything was always digital, right? right. Instead of going from bits to bytes and back to bits and so forth like that. And I think emails is like one of those things that I can't wait for it to go away. And there's now much more sort of chat technology that's available to us. And uh, I love hip chat. Um, HIP chat. It's a great way for our teams to collaborate here and not have to keep passing back documents and, uh, you know, we're going looking through miles and massive amounts of email threads with thousands of these little attachments constantly. So I think chat technology will be uh, being embraced more and we'll drop that like people, I don't know how many people in your, your listening group who, who still have fax machines, but, uh, you know, hopefully the email will go away, you know, in my lifetime. Oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> you too. <laughs> oh, so much time, so much time sifting through the things that are no, that are, you know, especially with the, with the firm and with Entrepreneur Architect, I get hit twice and I have to kind of go through all of it in order to find the things that are important. Yeah, and good luck when you, you have to take a day or two off and you come yeah. back and there's like 600 Hundreds. emails yeah. waiting for your immediate response. Right, have, yeah, you ever, have, you, have you ever filed for email bankruptcy? <laughs> and just deleted everything? Well, yeah, what you do is you realize your inbox is so full that you would never really get anything done. And you'd have, you know, you'd have to stop yeah. everything and spend, you know, days. So what you do is you just send an email out to everybody. Say, hey, folks, I've declared email bankruptcy. If you had an important thing that you really wanted me to deal with, please resend it. And then you just delete your inbox. <laughs> That's a great so. idea. I've never heard of that before. I once had it, had it uh, involuntarily happen where my computer crashed and I lost everything. It oh. was uh, from an email point of view, it may have been the best day of my life. <laughs> right. So it's, uh, this has been very, very interesting. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but um, thank you very much for being with me today. Mark, absolutely. My, my pleasure. It was a lot uh, less painful than I, than I thought. So uh, this was actually really a good way for me to, to spend nearly an hour with you. So uh, hopefully uh, it was useful for you and your, and your listeners got something valuable. Yeah, I think it was very useful. And, and I appreciate you taking some time on Archie Office because it's something that I've been interested in for a while and mm -hmm. never really understood it. And I think uh, I think it, it uh, may help a lot of architects. So thanks for mm -hmm. talking about it a little bit. My pleasure. I'll see you in Chicago at AIA convention, yeah, right? I'll be there. I'll look for you. We'll get together. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you too. Bye-bye. I thought it would be interesting to chat with Steven to learn about how he moved from being an architect to a full-time software developer and how he felt about making that move. Because I know that there are many architects out there that have a passion for something other than architecture and have too much fear or too much guilt to pursue their true purpose. And you know who you are. I thank Steven for sharing his story with us and for sharing a few details about Office. Are you running ArchiOffice in your firm or another package to manage your business systems? Because I'd love to know how software is helping your firm succeed. Please click over to the post for this episode on the blog at entrearchitect.com slash episode 28 and share your thoughts. And don't forget, visit iTunes and leave a review or a rating for the show entrearchitect.com slash iTunes. That'll send you to my iTunes page on the web. Just click on the view in iTunes button on that page and it will open up your iTunes app where you can leave your review for the show. If you like what I'm doing here on the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast, please, please show your love on iTunes and I thank you very, very much for that. So that's a wrap. Until next week, 
My name is Mark R. LePage, and I am an entrepreneur architect. Thanks for listening. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything i'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm where do we begin we don't even know what type of business to formalize as is it an llc is it an llp like how are taxes i mean the list is astronomical season one featured founders jeffrey lexi and chris owners of level studio architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio one evening stumbled into one last dive we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) So for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together.
Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.